Hi, you've found the Bomb Podcast. For streaming video, web exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com. Today's podcast is part of Bomb's series In the Open Art and Architecture in Public Spaces, and took place at Proteus Gowanus in Brooklyn on December 2nd, 2007. In today's podcast, Anita Glesta and Ellen Driscoll discuss the power of memory and storytelling. Anita Glesta's Guernica Guernica juxtaposed the provocative abstraction of Picasso's infamous painting with survivor accounts of the 1937 bombing of a Basque village. Ellen Driscoll's sculpture Revenant, a bridge made from hundreds of number two plastic bottles, was recently installed at the Nippon Ginkgo Bank in Hiroshima, one of the few structures to survive the atomic blast. Aware of the difference being a New Yorker, living here from the rest of the world, where these issues of identity continue to be very, very serious thrust mm -hmm. in life. Mm -hmm. in, in a larger piece like this Guernica piece, which was obviously very, very political, mm -hmm. um, I, and I was very surprised with, um, with it from the beginning. First of all, I had actually initially wanted this, to, this work to attach Bilbao and Guernica, which are only 30 mm. kilometers apart, mm. in a sound path. And so I met for a few years, this has been about five years in the doing, in the making, and, um, and got a lot of positive responses from them. But when I put forward what the um, cost of this might be, suddenly they weren't really there. Then later, I actually proposed it to the Reina Sofia in Madrid and met with the mayor there, and everybody was very positive about. And then um, Zapatero won the election, and there was a new director put in the museum, and they had other plans to do. So that kind mm -hmm. of feels, this is really, really political in every sense of the word, this project. Mm -hmm. And it never occurred to me to actually do this work in New York, mm -hmm. because I guess you don't always look in your own yard mm -hmm. uh, um, until somebody was sitting with me in my backyard, some, a German, in fact, who said, um, why don't you do this in New York? <laughs> really? I mean, would people get it here? Was really my first response was, would, would this have any kind of resonance because of who knows about Guernica, who thinks about it, who knows that it was a village, who cares? Um, but then, in fact, I, I went to the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, and right away, Radhika did get it, and later um, I presented it to White Box, because I wanted this to be both inside, within the art world, as, and outside, mm -hmm. in the public. The biggest surprise in all of this was actually the response from the Basque country, and it was really um, very devastating and very mm -hmm. emotional for me, and continues mm -hmm. to be because it, the work was not, not accepted there, but not of interest because it basically didn't promote a Basque theme. Oh, interesting. Yes, yeah. and so the um, message, if you can have a message in your work, which is kind of a weird thing to say as an artist, because it's like, ew, I have a message. But there was a quote that I used in this from Hannah Arendt, who, um, uh, writes about, I wrote about identity, and um, really what I wanted to do in this piece was question how identity is 
often the cause of war. Mm -hmm. And um, in the end, it kind of got turned inside out when I realized that this work was not being supported fiscally by, um, by the place where this began because I wasn't one of them. And so, because its identity message could not be uh, pinned down in a way that would suit them. Well, yes. So, so. that's right. So, um, yes, yeah, so in terms of making alliances and what, I mean, I, it really <laughs> made me feel good and made me understand my relationship with New York. It's taken a lifetime to do mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. and appreciate it that much mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. and recognize it and at the same time made me very aware mm -hmm. of the difference being a New Yorker, living here from the rest of the world, where these issues of identity continue to be very, very serious thrust mm -hmm. in life. Before the Gutenberg Bible and before printed matter was in high circulation, those public figures such as Roman orators and so forth who had to memorize and deliver long speeches did memorized, um, and there were practitioners of the arts of memory, so it wasn't just a, you know, Roman politicians, but there were people who practiced this. They would, and I'm gonna paraphrase this, they would take item number one in the speech, let's say, and put it in the hallway where the coats are hung. And then item number two goes into the uh, sort of foyer reception area. The really big part of the speech is stored in the dining room and then as we wind down and the speech is sort of getting to its waning hours, you know, those items might be stored in a couple of the back bedrooms and then there's the mud room or something like that. Anyway, to give the speech, this person essentially walks through the spaces where these items are stored. So it makes an argument for the early arts of memory being entirely architectural, geographic, and spatial. And those practitioners were walking through spaces in order to release information. So you pause in that area where the coats are hung, and the information is released if you are well-practiced at these arts of memory. And the arts of memory went on, and, and spinning wheels were developed, and all kinds of fascinating other uh, visual and spatial tools. And it became really quite elaborate, especially um, connected to the Globe Theater of Shakespeare. Read the book. I can't really do it justice. But um, I, I use scale in my work, as I mentioned earlier. Some things are shrunken. Other things are too big. And um, I feel that uh, you know, using space and scale is my contemporary attempt to sort of play that keyboard and to release, um, in some cases, kind of collective memory. Um, memory, you know, many of the people in this room just could barely recall what the First World War was. And yet some people, like me, have grandfathers who fought in it and whatever, and human life is a chain of memory passed person to person for the most part. And so sometimes in my work I'm trying to figure out how to trigger that chain in the accidental encounter of you and you and you with something that you hadn't planned to see, but you just stumbled on. You went to that park, you waited for that train, you used that bathroom, you sat on that bench. 
not to be too general in my answers, but I think that yes, there are cultural differences that you can expect and you can explain, and sometimes they're disappointing. At other times, they're wonderful revelations. Mm -hmm. And the same is true in just venturing into a new material, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, and like Ellen, we both very often use new materials to explore a, a site mm -hmm. because the site will call for it. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if you ever used that technology before that you were using on Huntington Avenue, no. but it's like, wow, yeah. that's pretty risky, and yeah. that's going to be scary, and that's, yeah. you know, that I guess that's a language in itself, and that's what I'm trying to answer. You know, new material is as much, and putting it in a new space is as much of an introduction of something kind of scary as entering as a foreigner into another land. You know, you oh, I, get, I think as an artist, you're always doing that as you, um, as you grow in your practice. And how much you do that, I guess, depends on how crazy you are <laughs> as an artist and the risks you're willing to take. But it is so much about, about that risk taking. When I first moved to, when we first moved to Australia, I did a piece in the, in the park there. And I was thrilled to work in the public there for a lot of different reasons. But one is that um, I could really work with ephemeral materials in the public in a way that you can't in New York. I mean, you know, it's like there was no accident that it was steel and the bolt everything down. And there, um, I there was this um, um, temporary public art uh, thing in the park in the middle of Sydney. And I noticed that there were just absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous birds there. I mean, the birds were brazen. They're brazen. They're in your face. And they were pigeons. You know, we're talking, you know, not only minded birds, but those cockatoos would just fly around. It's like seriously, intensely beautiful. And so I wanted to do something that, that again, you know, like with all the work, allowed them to enter. And so I made a gigantic, um, I guess it was a bird stall. There were two fences that I covered with coconut fiber, which is what the highways down there used for um, irrigation, actually. And into that, I actually sewed pockets out of coconut fiber, which incorporated bird seed and grass seed so that the birds could actually move in and transform it. And they did. It was, it was a temporary little big, actually. It was 40 feet long. And people could walk through it. People, in fact, in the park took their horses and they, they um, whatever, rode through. <laughs> I was so amazing because it was like, I can't believe this is in the middle of the city. Wow. This is happening, you know. Wow. Do you, like, can't do that in New York, but they, the birds transformed it. And then, I mean, well, it was really great to, to work with birds and to have their beautiful nests, but then, sadly, I had to take it down, mm. and I really felt evil. <laughs> I gave them a little home, and then I was like, okay, out of here. <laughs> Next. Eviction notice. Yeah. <laughs> then I was really the New Yorker coming in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what I'm wondering about, Ellen, is I've noticed that in, in your practice, you use a lot of different materials. Mm -hmm. You use plastic bottles and you use technology. Mm -hmm. You use very dense imagery that's figurative. Mm -hmm. And you also will do something that's fairly abstract. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what, um, 
what your process is that, that responds to, uh, I imagine, a sight in that kind of complexity. Right. It, I mean, the, the public works always respond to a site. I think um, the plastic landscapes that I showed are, in some sense of the word, a kind of a non-site. They're, they're nowheresville landscapes. They could be anywhere and nowhere, which is, I think, you know, one reason why the use of scale, the tiny little oil rig, and the sense of a, a sort of a distant perspective, I think, um, makes them more migratory, more um, nomadic in their in their way of being in the world. Let's say, and literally, they are they are wandering. I wander to collect the material, and then the pieces themselves wander. That's totally different from having to sort of glue yourself to a wall in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. and to sign on the dotted line that it's in perpetuity, God damn it, you know? It's like you, you're under a legal contract to provide something that will last for a long time. And the two different ways of thinking, I think, kind of complement each other. Um, and that's a, a somewhat of a deviation from your question, but it does take in the question of time and how the work exists, you know, in time, really. I would say that the sculptures are um, more, uh, more single-minded. They, they don't allow themselves the same degree of freedom. And um, also the material itself is very restrictive. I mean, there's not, you can't get a plastic bottle to do anything. It will only do some things. And <laughs> it's only this big, you know. And <laughs> Uh, the, the thing that, that there's no limit on is that there's absolutely no shortage of them. And um, for those of you who are in this neighborhood, I, I probably have your bottles in this work, as you know. And um, I can get about 100 bottles in 45 minutes in three blocks. If you had any doubt of how much of it is out there, it's just totally wild. We're drowning in this stuff. So it's the volume of it alone is quite amazing, I think. And uh, when, when, I, when I'm in my gleaner personality, and I think the gleaning is a, is a really good sort of metaphor to talk about all the work, it, it, it is nomadic, um, but, you know, my eye becomes like a, a magpie building a nest, you know. Half a block away, I see my stuff in a bag, and I'm there. And when I'm in that mode, it's hard for me to walk down any sidewalk past a hotel in Manhattan. I mean, I could be on my way to a party, but I see that stuff and it's like, ah, you know. So you're, you become a collector, a reuser, a remaker, a, a, a sort of a weird reinventor. And one of my tasks when I'm on the street doing this, I did bump into Sasha one day and I was quite delicately embarrassed about the fact that I was going through her bag and I said, I'm sorry, you know, you're not supposed to know me, but, but I'm doing this. Um, but I try very hard to kind of normalize it because the way people look at me is that they avert their eyes and, and I am in that realm of, of homeless or marginal people who must do this. So I'm, I'm, you know, people have said, well, why don't you document yourself? And I'm like, 
You don't have a camera crew in this delicate social environment. I, I greet everybody by looking them in the eye, and I um, really try to normalize what I'm doing. And I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that the gleaner is, for me, the, the active metaphor for both the drawings and mm -hmm. the sculpture, and to some degree the public work as well, because it, it does have a really broad base to it. My, my favorite um, part of the early uh, part of your 10-minute sequence is the description, the man's description of the Guernica painting. Yeah. And the, and the dissonance between his understanding of his own Guernica life as a mm -hmm. regular citizen of that place, his sort of um, reckoning, I guess I would say, with the famous um, mm -hmm. Guernica that the world knows through art. And to me, it's absolutely fascinating to watch the sort of slippery description going on, like, well, you know, if it had been a donkey, that'd be one thing, but, you know, and then there's that eye in the painting, and I, I just love that um, sort of feeling of near and far away that, that happens in that description. And I also think that um, I'm, I'm reminded of a story in Harriet uh, Senny's book on public art about the New York City Public Library lions and the, the story of how much they were hated and that sculptor's awful. And, and now, you know, it's on every keychain and T-shirt and it's all, it's, it's New York already, those lions, you know? And I, I think that, you know, for him to understand that the world sees the painting and, and knows him, he's, I almost sense he comes to peace with it somehow in, at the end of his description. And to some degree, I think that, that dissonance and those small ruptures are an interesting part of what um, the life of a public work is. ¿Habías visto el cuadro de Picasso cuando estuvisteis allí? No. ¿Y qué, no. tal, qué tal te parece aquel el, cuadro? El primer, te... el primer cuadro de Picasso, lo vi muchos años después, el año 60 y tantos, <coughs> me lo enseñó el que era alcalde de Guernica, que era amigo uh -huh. mío, en Z, luego Eta le, le mató, en un sello de Checoslovaquia, <coughs> que habían publicado, el sello era el cuadro de Guernica, me enseñó el resto. Pues yo la verdad es que al principio no reconocí Guernica en el sello aquel. O sea, para los guernicenses, claro, el tipo de cuadro que es la forma como está, y los elementos que aparecen, pues no, aparecen un caballo y un toro que no son muy propios de... ¿De aquí? Si hubiera sido un burro, es más propio. El caballo no, <risa> sí, aquí el burro, pues todas las aldeanas traían. Eh. Y el toro, pues tampoco era muy... muy... Hubo, solía decir en cuanto a plaza de toros que montaban de madera para alguna fiesta o de otra, pero no es típico de aquí. Claro. Y por eso en el caso, no se reconocía el... El, el, el era algo de, de, de artista. Sí, más. era el del artista y además, pues, claro, aparecen cosas muy raras, un ojo y una historia que aparecen por allí y no, no se, se reconocía. El... Entonces, no tiene el, el sen sí, sentido. Aunque, aunque después, por el, el, el impacto que ha tenido en todo el mundo, pues entonces, pues, claro, la gente pues, ha, ya ha ido asimilando de que esto es Guernica también, porque ha dado a conocer a Guernica al mundo, a, a lo que aquí ocurrió. Really, what he, he says there is the gist of what I have been trying to do 
in this Guernica work, mm -hmm. which is juxtaposed in a way fiction with reality mm -hmm. and, and pose as a question what it means to us now, mm -hmm. us meaning artists, in mm -hmm. fact, mm -hmm. in this century um, of our own or, or the power of image making. And he himself, Luis, is a painter himself. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. And um, so he was, what he said was spoken with great sensitivity, mm -hmm. but also sincerity. Mm -hmm. You know, they really did respond that way. Mm -hmm. You know, just, and, and again, I could speak endlessly about, about just that and how both at White Box and in its public um, uh, life, mm -hmm. this work is constantly about um, establishing relationships, relationships with this century, with, with what happened in the aftermath of a bombing and survival, with, um, with again, you know, what we see as an icon of, of art now mm -hmm. as political symbolism with what in fact actually happened. Mm -hmm. But um, in the end, just, and, and I, so I just mentioned all those things, those are many layers of this, but in the end, one of the things that is actually interesting um, anecdotally is that Guernica as a village, um, life has really not changed. And it has, while there is Guernica the coffee cup and Guernica the lunch mat and everything else, <laughs> the placemat, there really, it continues to be uh, the same life that, ha that people have experienced there pre-bombing as well. I mean, except for perhaps much more embitterment, but their lives continue mm -hmm. in very much the same way. And, and that also was very interesting to me in doing this work. So, um, and you know, I, I just actually will say one more thing before, before I move back into you. In terms of storytelling, for me personally, um, it, I have a very complicated relationship with it because, and that's also why I was really interested in talking to you more because of the density of your image making. Mine always, my own practice always questions the image and I am inherently suspicious of being seduced by an image. That's part of why I guess the juxtaposition of, of the Guernica painting with the people's stories is so poignant for me. I, I, really, I really do question it a lot. I worry about it all the time. I worry about object making. It's part of what draws me into working in the public in a much more physically interactive way. And, um, and so, yes, that is a part of, of this whole, his response to the Picasso painting and the eyes and the horse and the whole thing is that, you know, where, where did Picasso's imagination go with this? How do we now interpret it? What, what, what does it all mean? In one of the interviews that I had with one of the survivors, she had mentioned radios being tossed into people's yards um, as, and sewing machines and that radios were really the, the most important form of communication in the 1930s. And so for me, it was very, poignant to use a, a radio as that. Tossed and into people's yards. Well, when the, um, when the um, villages were pillaged and burned, mm -hmm. they were 
houses were robbed and people's radios, which were very sacred, and sewing machines and other possessions were thrown around. And so mm -hmm. the, ra the radio itself seemed to make sense as a metaphor is also, or, or as an object, it was also going to give sound. And I felt that if I could make it in a small, unobtrusive way, mm -hmm. it would just sit there on the bench and people would then just maybe listen to it. And it was also kind of a nice contrast to all the big phallic objects known as sculptures in Lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And this was a sculpture that really wasn't and mm -hmm. isn't. And in terms of the permanence and its longevity, yes, it would be very nice if it was permanently somewhere. <laughs> it's built to last. It is built to last. And it was yeah. built to take a lot, a lot knocks as well mm -hmm. there. I mean, and people would jump on it and sometimes mm -hmm. use it as Chinese food trays for their lunch. And, <laughs> You know, it took it took in that in that short one month time um, quite a bit of abuse, but it withstood mm -hmm. it. I was also struck by the use of plastic mm -hmm. as the language and material in Hiroshima, mm -hmm. and why you chose to mm -hmm. do that. Well, the the invitation to I, I had already started working on these plastic landscapes when the invitation to go to Hiroshima came along via my great friend Zero Higashida. And um, I thought about whether it was appropriate because the site in Hiroshima was so stunningly haunted and strange. And it's a very important building there. Um, I learned when I got there that, A, as I said, it very little had been changed. I mean, I'm assuming that certain amount of cleaning has gone on. But uh, the lighting and the whole feeling of the building is uh, seems very much from that time. And I was thinking um, that the kind of global warming catastrophe that we seem to be accelerating into, and the reason I opened the talk with the image of the accidental fire on the Nigerian pipeline, is that, um, and it, it's, not, it's not an exaggeration to, to say that future and present wars are being fought for our right to consume as we please. So I was installing in the site of a historic war, and I was essentially uh, jump cutting to uh, the material and the, and the subject of present and future wars. And that's really how I saw the Revenant uh, piece. And because it has such a ghostly presence, it, 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 it hovers, I would say, in a kind of indeterminate time frame. It's neither past, present, nor future. Its scale is strange. Its material is wrong for something that's an engineering miracle, that is to say, that kind of a bridge. Um, everything about it is, is much more dreamlike than, than real. And so, um, and frankly, I have to say that building is a very public building. There are people coming in off the street every single day. It's not a pre-selected art audience. Um, they seem to really understand it. And it may be partly because post-war Japan um, is, I, I, I hesitate to say this, but it might be true, more in love with plastic than many other places on Earth. And sure. more creative, more inventive, and more interesting mm. in their use of it. So they love it as a material, and uh, they embrace it. And with that said, they don't have anywhere near the kind of uh, pollution or garbage problems that we have. 
they are much more stringent about recycling. So I found myself in an almost an embarrassed way describing what McMansions were, for example, and uh, the patterns of American consumption and so forth. That is not Japanese. So there were dissonant aspects to installing something that um, was, in a sense, very American mm -hmm. in that site. And yet, um, you know, the Japanese are consuming oil and so forth, perhaps not quite at our clip, but um, they understood it as essentially a kind of uh, work that had to do with war and peace. You just heard a discussion between Ellen Driscoll and Anita Glesta. For streaming video, web-exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com.